0: Do some interactions with your patients or clients leave you feeling exhausted and anxious? Do you sometimes feel that you can't take any more of anyone else's emotions? This might mean that you're in charge of too many naughty monkeys belonging to other people and it's time to give them back. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Amit Sharma about what we mean when we talk about taking on other people's naughty monkey, why we do it so easily and why it's sometimes so difficult to give them back. So listen if you want to find out what effect taking on too many people's emotions and naughty monkeys has on our physical and mental health, how to stop rescuing other people all of the time, and why it's important to be okay with not being liked. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, I'm a GP 10 coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience and I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years experience working in the NHS, both on the frontline and teaching leadership and resilience. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake, and one crisis away from not coping. 2021 promises to be a particularly challenging year. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been compared to frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer, And the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly notice the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Through training as an executive and team coach, I discovered some hugely helpful resilience and productivity tools that transformed the way I approached my work. I've been teaching these principles over the last few years as the Shapes Toolkit Programme, because if you're happier at work, you'll simply do a better job this podcast I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts all who have an interesting take on this so that together we can take back control to thrive not just survive in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's great to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Amit Sharma. Hi, Amit. Hi, Rachel. Great to have you. Now, Amit's a GP partner. He's a GP trainer. He's also the managing partner at HITS Practice. He's a chair of the West Berkshire PCN Networks and also the clinical director of the Early Plus PCN. So that, that's quite a portfolio, Amit.
1: Quite, quite a lot of different things. Yeah, absolutely. Keeps him busy.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, do you ever have time to sleep with all of that lot going on?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, partly that's what we'll talk about. I guess it's about managing the time well. And uh, I, I guess if we didn't, then they wouldn't be able to do half of those things.
0: Mm, great. So I've got Emma on the podcast today and we are going to be talking about um, naughty monkeys and how we give them back. Now, I don't know if uh, people will remember a while back, I did a podcast with Dr. Caroline Walker, who's the Joyful Doctor, all about um, well, we've done one about COVID fatigue. We've done one about stress and anxiety. We've been done, we've sort of done quite recently about moving on about what what happens next and what we do. And she was talking about this thing called the naughty monkey. And that's very much one of the areas that you're quite interested in. And I know you've done a bit of work around that with with trainees and you do some teaching on it and stuff. So just first of all, what is the naughty monkey and why is that relevant for our listeners on the podcast?
1: (laughs) The naughty monkey uh, is an interesting concept. I think it's been described by Roger Naber, uh, amongst others, but essentially it's the uh, the things that the client or the patient in our case is actually bringing to the consultation. So it's, I guess, their agenda, but also their burdens um, that they're carrying. Um, and the concern, I guess, is, is we want to help manage those naughty monkeys, th- those burdens, But essentially, we want to empower the patient and and actually for them to take those uh, those burdens away for them with them, with the advice and and help and support that we can provide. Um, Mm. But the danger, of course, is that those naughty monkeys stay in the room and never leave and stay with the doctor or whichever health professional or or any profession, really, that's that's working uh, with people. Um, And you end up keeping those naughty monkeys and they create burdens and weigh you down.
0: Yeah, so I love I love this concept of the naughty monkey. It just it just sort of brings up such a great visual image of of someone coming in and this sort of monkey jumping around your your room and sort of destroying everything that that is there. Um, and it it is true that people come in to see you with stuff. And I remember once a a chap came in and it was a student actually, and he'd had a dreadful childhood, and mm. I felt so upset after I'd seen him and after I think his a friend had just committed suicide or something like that. Something dreadful had just happened to him and he was incredibly upset. And I felt a wreck for the rest of the day, actually. Yeah. Afterwards. Is, is that the sort of thing we're talking about? As a, as a naughty monkey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, can, it, it could be exactly that type of scenario. Um, it may be more subtle than that. Um, that. That's fairly obvious, I guess. It may be more subtle. It may be um, actually um, the, the patient or the client actually needs help with uh, housing or they need help with finances or they need help with their mental health or whatever, whatever the issue is. But I guess the key is that they're leaving that uh, firmly at your door. Believing that you will address it for them And I guess not taking it away Or feeling empowered to, to deal with it them, themselves I guess in psychology you, you would call it part of Partly it's transference and counter-transference It's that sort of concept um, that they were looking at
0: mm. And so we've constantly got patients coming in or clients coming in with their with their naughty monkeys and i guess it's fair to say it's not just gps and it's not just doctors but this can happen with anyone who who deals with people who have problems that need solving i'm, I'm thinking particularly of lawyers as well who you know people come to them with massive issues and massive problems mm. that they need that, that they need them to solve so this isn't specific for healthcare is it
1: no i think i think uh, any sort of you know high stress job where you're dealing with people and particularly where there is, I guess, a a professional uh, relationship. What I'm interested in is actually the the professional boundaries and how you maintain those in that relationship. So it's really anywhere where there is that professional relationship with a client or a patient and where you're dealing with them directly yourself. Mm
0: -hmm. So I know the answer to this question is fairly obvious, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I'm sure you'll have your own particular take on it. What happens if we really don't give the naughty monkeys back to people if we just <laughs> end up with a cage full of these naughty monkeys?
1: Well, well and unfortunately, I've, I've seen this in colleagues um, where actually the, the naughty monkeys are kept in the room and they, they end up staying with, with the person. And what happens is that we become drained, we become burdened by these problems and are unable to escape from them and actually we develop a cycle with our clients and with our patients where they feel that they can unburden by coming to see the professional that they're seeing and have some relief from that have possibly some um you know, in, in, you know something to to help them forget about the sort of the problems that they're having but the professional themselves is actually then weighed down and in the short term you may not notice anything but in the medium to longer term it will start to have an effect as you're unable then to give as much of your mental energy to other patients and clients who need your support just as much as just as much as those ones who are uh, unburdening in that way um, so we eventually can unfortunately see people actually burning out and, and and leaving the profession or or taking on different roles um because because of that issue so it's a really important one for us to tackle and to be mindful of and it's something right from the beginning of my career I've been really aware of um, the need to ensure I, I'm working within the the right boundaries with with patients
0: we're mm-hmm. gonna really like to explore that in a minute but first of all I'd just like to dig a bit deeper into what these naughty monkeys are and why it is so bad for psychologically because I We're healthcare professionals or lawyers. You know, we are people who. That's our job is to help people. Our job, to some extent, is to take that naughty monkey and tame it and turn it into a good monkey. But what what is it that that really burdens us? Is it the emotions of it and the sadness, or is it the sense of responsibility, or is it something else?
1: Yeah, I think it's partly about ownership. So it is something to do with that responsibility. Um, Of course, in the course of our um, in our jobs, we have got to help tame these monkeys. We've got to help support people. As the example you gave, uh, Rachel, is a really sad example. We wouldn't be human if we didn't feel um, sad or um, uh, empathetic about that. But those problems are often not for us to own. Um, and not for us to take away. And the resolution to those problems, yes, we can advise and help, but often, um, quite often, the, the patient or the client themselves has to be the one that takes the steps to to actually curing that problem or or moving to a better place. Um, I, there are there are numerous examples which I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to that we could give where actually professionals can inappropriately take on responsibility for. For actual um, things that the actual client or the patient should actually you know, take on themselves, because that will empower them and will be better for them uh, in the long run. Hmm.
0: It's a really difficult one, isn't it? I think. Do you do you think this thing about taking on responsibility is? Yeah, we are responsible for a bit of it, aren't we? We're responsible for, you know, trying to diagnose someone's healthcare needs and for referring them and things like that. We're not responsible for if they choose to carry on smoking or what life decisions they make. So I've seen people feeling lots of guilt about patients. And is that because there's inappropriate responsibility being taken? Because I think healthcare professionals feel guilty about just normal stuff that happens about people's illnesses. If someone mm. doesn't get better, they feel guilty. If someone's got a, a dreadful stuff going on in their personal life, we can feel a little bit guilty that we can't help, even if there's no help in the world that would actually mm. do any. Is, is that reasonable? Have you seen that?
1: Happening? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I've experienced that you know, myself, you know, where part of the reason we do the job that we do is because we feel a burden to help support people. And it really bothers me when I can't, support someone in the way I'd hope, or they don't progress or they don't get better, um, or they have a diagnosis, that, that that means they won't get better. That's really distressing. And again, that's part of the reason we do the job. But ultimately, I think we have to have an understanding of our role here. So I, I often tell my trainees this, but in our job, we're healthcare professionals. So we're experts in health, hopefully we care and are compassionate, and that's really important to what we do, but we are professionals, and we always talk about professionalism in terms of being punctual, being on time, being um, appropriately dressed, and we think of that as professionalism, Um, but actually I think part of that is actually forming professional boundaries with patients and partnering with the patients, this concept that um, actually the patient is at the centre of their health not you as as the clinician you your guide your facilitator to enable them to better health so your your role there uh, is actually to stay within that that boundary and not to take on responsibilities that are actually the the patients um, so that's that's a key area is to understand our role and once over time we we understand that and start to um start to develop that then it helps to manage some of the guilt and some of the um, raw emotions we can feel, uh, which which we all go through uh, in, in our line of work and, and many other lines of work where you're dealing directly with the, with the public.
0: Mm. I think there's two problems, aren't there? The firstly is that we ourselves are inappropriately taking on too much of the responsibility and too much of the, uh, yeah, the need to to cure them or to make yeah. things better. We're in the rescuer role if you talk about the yes. drama triangle when you've Absolutely. got the rescue and the persecutor and the victim. And we see them, we sometimes see them as the victim who are completely helpless and can't do anything. There is the other side to that though, is that they can be very quick to take on the victim role and give us their naughty monkey in, inappropriately. I mean, no. I know when, you know, doing consultation skills training, I remember the first time I I decided to ask about ideas, concerns and expectations. You know, I said, what's brought you here? And, you know, what are you particularly concerned about? And what, what have you put this down to in your own mind? What would you like me to do about it? You know, the first response I got was, well, I don't know, you're the doctor. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, what do we do when actually people are throwing their monkeys at us? Take it. It's it's not mine. I I don't want it. You you have it. Because lots of people do do that. People are quite bad sometimes about taking responsibility for themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the biggest challenges we have um, every day, really. And if you think about what drains you at the end of a busy day, it's actually those kind of uh, consultations and encounters often, uh, as well as the the problem-solving aspect of making decisions and diagnosis. It's, It's that exactly what you described, Rachel. I think in those situations, the first thing response I generally have is one of grace. And so I try and build a rapport with the patient. So if someone's saying look I don't know this is your you know this is your issue to sort out um, try and unpack that first. Try and really understand okay you know why are you then why are you here you know it kind of what what has actually led to you coming in today but then try and unpack some of the symptoms if you're not getting anywhere. Try and build some of a relationship, build some trust in the consultation and then maybe you have to re- revisit that later on and sort of go back to it and say well actually um Look, these are the things that we could do today. These are some of the things I could do, but these are some of the things you could do. Um, I, and I guess when you're meeting someone for the first time, that can feel quite daunting to give someone responsibility uh, and give someone ownership of of their of their health. When you think, well, actually, they've just come to get the advice that they want, and uh, you know, they, they want to be on their way. You know, they just want uh, the advice and and get the help, and that's it. So that that's part of the way you unpack it. I think obviously it gets easier as you get to know people. Like anything in in life, um, the more you develop the relationships uh, with, with patients, the easier that conversation um, uh, becomes. And you know, we, we'll never do it perfectly. I mean, I, I certainly don't. <laughs> and there's been um, you know many patients where I've been really really aware that actually I, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking this all on here, um, and actually uh, I should be encouraging the patient to do that.
0: But there's another reason as well. I think that we we do take on too much, and I think that's fear.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think fear of complaints is is a massive thing, Mm. and fear of fear of mistakes is a massive thing. Not just in medicine, but in law, accountancy, and many other professional professions. So you go above and beyond and inappropriately take on people's things because we are so scared of doing something wrong or someone putting in a complaint about us. Yeah. Um, what do we do
1: about that? So that's definitely driving some of our behaviours, isn't it? And driving some of the things that we do in the decisions that we make. Um, in, terms of, in terms of complaints, the, the, the danger is that we just live and, and make all the decisions based on that fear. I think the reality is um, in most of the complaints that happen are because of communication. Um, and rather than actual decision that was made. That's not always the case, you know, but if you look at the majority of reasons, it's communication. So having good communication with the patient and sometimes actually being honest with the patients about the dilemmas that you face um, is, is really important to share some of that, that risk. Um, ultimately, you're going to help them manage that, um, but actually sharing that and unburdening that I've always found has been helpful um, mm. to, to, to try and manage that. but I think Rachel for, another question for me here though is is it you know there's a fear of complaints, but also there's there's a bit about um, wanting to be liked and mm-hmm. uh, wanting to please. Uh, and certainly as uh, healthcare professionals but in other roles as well, we certainly can fall into that. Uh, And it's important we understand ourselves and understand what we, our values are really, and whether that is part of our personality. Um, So that's something I I always do, you know, not just with myself and colleagues, but with trainees is look at the psychometric testing, things like Myers-Briggs and Honey Mumford. These can all be really helpful to understanding why we behave uh, in a certain way uh, with patients and clients.
0: Mm -hmm think that is that is so true a lot of our behavior is driven out of wanting to be liked and actually that is driven out of fear a lot of the time because we know that our amygdalas react to certain things they react to physical threats they react to hierarchical threats and they react to people not liking us Mm. threats you know i I remember a patient sat down she came in once the surgery and before she said anything she sat down in front of me she said well i've just come to say that every doctor i've seen so far has been no effing use at all so you'll be no effing use and yep. i was just like oh yeah. that's awful she doesn't like me i thought hang on a sec she's never met me she, she has no <laughs> she has nothing to base about on the right apart from the fact i'm a doctor um but immediately i was triggered into oh she doesn't like me you know and yeah. we know why we get triggered because you know in our ancient when we were living in caves if we were tricked you know if we were thrown out the group we would die of exposure so it's like a proper threat thing but again yeah so it goes down to fear of not being liked by people or not being accepted mm. I- accepted by the group so we yeah. do things to make people like us and then you get the Thing where you're overly taking on responsibility because you want them to like you. Yeah. And then you get into the drama triangle and the drama triangle, I find absolutely fascinating. It's one of the mm. shapes to talk about a lot. And it brings, you know, you can see when teams do it and doctors do it, they go, oh yeah. Because you've got the. for people that don't know about it. It was devised by Stephen Cartman in the 1960s. Mm. He, he was Eric Byrne's student. Eric Byrne is the father of transactional analysis that we've already talked about. But you've got the, the three uh, roles, which you've got the rescuer, which I think GPs, accountants, lawyers, most professionals firmly sit in rescuer. Then you've got the victim and that probably we see our patients or our clients as the victims that we need to help. Then you've got the persecutor, um, which is the problem, their help problem or someone else that's being the problem. And the problem is we just move around. So Um. we start off by wanting to be the rescuer to this poor victim. And then as soon as we as a rescuer can't give the victim what they want, i.e., sort out my back pain make it completely better if we can't do that we then get put in the role of the persecutor yeah. and that's where the complaints and stuff and stuff comes so i think the only way we can really start getting out of it is just to s- step out of that role as rescuer completely yeah. rather than taking on in the first place so how, how can we do that i get it top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz.
1: Yeah, I think partly it's, it's a conversation like this. It's actually understanding your role and understanding this is actually happening. Um, and I think this is why if from the outset you understand yourself and understand um, the psychology of the consultation to some degree, that's really helpful um, to, to know that this process is happening. And I think partly you have to work on this this feeling of being liked and, um, it's, and understanding that it's okay sometimes not to be liked um, and... Actually, if every single um, consultation, every single client liked you and gave you 100% satisfaction, you're probably not challenging your patients. You're probably not doing something right, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and unfortunately we do receive complaints and uh, sadly it's become a, a norm that, that uh, a doctor or, or, or a, any sort of professional really will expect some kind of complaint. I often say to the, the students now that if you never have a complaint in your career, um or, or over or even over a ten year period now you probably or even any feedback you 're probably again not doing something right you 're probably not actually um challenging your patients because uh you know sometimes we do get sometimes you know patients do um do respond to that so i think Having an understanding of the the consultation, having an understanding that all these dynamics are at play can really help us um, to to unpack this and and change the way we consult. Certainly that's what helped me. Um, I remember coming as a new uh, GP and uh, the first year um, having some of these issues that we're describing. And I think that was a real learning curve for me as an independent GP. I think about a year in, I realized that actually I probably was on that balance or on that side of of uh, being the rescuer and 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 wanting to go over and, over and above um all the time
0: you may get a complaint if you say no to someone but if you can give you reasons for saying no and then then that's going to be fine it's like you said you can't please all of the people all the time i'm thinking you're probably going to get a bigger complaint if you blur the boundaries going above and beyond or overstep the mark in your helping yeah. and you're helping and something goes wrong then Absolutely. then then that's when I've seen doctors and, yeah. and other people get into real trouble yeah. when they've overhelped and overrescued yeah. Um,
1: yeah and there's a cost to that isn't there and there's a cost to saying yes to everything um, there's a cost to the patient themselves because they're not empowered mm-hmm. um, and and fall back. Uh, they're not activated to, to manage their own health. There's a cost to the the clinician, but it's also a cost to the colleagues mm-hmm. as well uh, and other patients. Because if you're devoting your weekly time and attention to this patient who should be doing more for themselves, it means you're not seeing other patients who who could benefit from your help and support. So... Uh, but understanding these these sorts of concepts has really helped me become more self-aware in the consult.
0: And how would you spot when you're in that rescuer role and being overly responsible and not and taking that naughty monkey on, what the, what the telltale signs?
1: So one of the things is, I guess, how you feel about work day to day. How are you feeling after a day's work? Now there can be many reasons why you might be dissatisfied or, or, or feeling tired or, or struggling at work. There can be many reasons for that, but this is one of the areas um, that, that you'll notice first really is, is that you are struggling with your workload. You're struggling to, to manage day to day. You may also get comments from colleagues um, certainly that that's often been really helpful in my development is colleagues are saying well actually i, I saw this patient and uh, you'd offer to do this and this and this and uh, <laughs> i'm not sure are you mad <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure you really should have done Crazy that man. um yeah. so uh, and that's helpful and you need an mm-hmm. environment a supportive environment where people are willing to give that kind of feedback and and talk to you and, and i'm really thankful i works um where i work that that culture exists um so i think that's really important um but yeah is that personal uh, kind of dissatisfaction with work um, maybe an initial sign that actually you are potentially taking on too much um of the load but the, the people that Really struggle, you know that. And I,
0: I know I've been a receptionist. So we were laughing earlier because actually <laughs> the way I met the way I met Amit was because um, we, we were communicating on LinkedIn about something, and I spotted that you were actually from Brookside Group Practice, which is where I was literally brought up (laughs) quite literally. So uh, from uh, an an old blast from the past. So I was actually a receptionist there in my holidays. My father was one of the GPs. And so actually, you know, I remember working as a receptionist and some doctors would take, would just be over the whole time. You would know there'd be patients in them for for hours sometimes. Mm. And other doctors would whiz whiz through their patients. Now. There's a, ba- there's a balance, isn't there's there? A balance. There's, yeah, there's definitely a balance, but definitely the people that, that were really spent a long time and took all the problems on it. I guess in those days, probably that was more like what you did as a, yeah. As yeah. a GP, as a real cradle to grave GP. But you can't do that now because oh. there is too much work. Yes, You will get burnt out.
1: Yeah, the demands are much greater, and I guess uh, the expectations of patients—you know, quite rightly so—to some extent, with all the different diagnostics and treatments we have now—are are much greater as well. So, yeah, you, you can't really function um, like that. So, it is a—it cha- is a big change, actually. I think in the way GPs moving forward. But the other thing is, um, Rachel, we've got a number of other avenues of support and help now. So, for instance, with uh, primary care networks, which are gr- groups of GPs. Uh, we are sort of now employing people like social prescribers who are there to help with these kind of life issues. And they can spend 45 minutes or an hour with a patient properly going through all of these different issues that they have and uh, that is such a valuable resource and one that you know we're trying to maximize uh, the the usage of so actually the the gp isn't the only source of support there is so much out there in the community and and volunteers there's just so much support if we know how to access it and when the right time is to use it um and so yeah really reducing the reliance and dependency on us
0: yeah, I think we have a real hero complex, and yeah. that's that's a, that w- when you're in the rescuer role, you have this hero complex. And I was really fascinated to find out. So I co-author the Lead Manage Thrive course for Redwell, yeah. and we we working we're doing the Working at Scale course, and we were talking about the public um, health determinants of healthcare. Oh. Actually, only fifteen yeah. percent of somebody's health is determined by medicine. And yep. and the healthcare system, the rest is determined by their housing, by their genetics, absolutely, by society, by by everything like that. So actually, if you think about healthcare, it can only affect fifteen percent of of a patient's life anyway. And you, out of that fifteen percent, is probably quite small as well because there's all mm. sorts of other things in there. So we really need to stop thinking we can do much about anything really. Or is yeah. that a bit nihilistic?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we've got our we've got our role to play, haven't we? But that's it. We've got a role to play. We're we're not the the owner of uh, the patient's healthcare. They they're the owner of their healthcare and all these other issues um, around them as well. And I guess it, that also makes uh, me consider about the role of things like prescriptions. You know, that's one of the most important things that we can do is, is prescribe things. That's uh, that's you know, as a hero, that's my one of my main skills I have is to be able to prescribe things, and. It can be quite uh, rewarding to prescribe and the patients can often have that their expectation to have a prescription. But oft- sometimes that can be the worst thing to do um, because if it's something uh, where it's 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 a mood problem perhaps where which isn't severe and doesn't need, um, it's not clinical depression, it doesn't need necessarily um, medication um, and there are other avenues they could support. Giving them a prescription medicalizes it and it continues to create that dependency. You, you, you know what it's like. You give you give a medication, it uh, invariably get a side effect. So you get a phone call about the side effect. You then perhaps think about changing the dose or changing the medication. And you can go into that cycle and there's lots of different drugs out there. So you could spend two years conceivably going through this cycle. Um, and I know that because I think I did that once um, with a patient and thought, actually, I've just spent two years going through all of this. When, when, when actually the problems here are the issues at home um, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about those and that patient actually really unlocked a lot of this for me I, I remember saying to her could you just list all the things that you think could help you get out of the situation that you're in she wrote them down uh, for our next consultation and we looked through it together and i said look how many of these things do you think i can influence and, and actually it was just the prescriptions was the only thing that I was influencing and, 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 probably, you know, some of the drugs she might've needed, but some of, you know, some, some, some of it, she probably didn't. And that was a great learning thing uh, for me and for her. And she said, well, actually, I, you know, I, I probably don't need to come back to see you. Um, I said, we've also got these people called pharmacists. They can also help you with prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but actually that was a great learning uh, experience for me uh, as to, Exactly that, the hero complex, uh, and using prescriptions to fulfil that.
0: Yeah, and and also using prescriptions just to to solve the problem, to get people out out the room yeah. as well, because it's it is the easy thing to do. Let's face it. I mean, you know I've got a a friend who's a um, very very good family lawyer, but she does everything to try mediation and try get them to sort it out. You know, court. It's like court is the last. You know, the last stitch thing, you know, you don't go in. Maybe we should be thinking more about, you know, medical intervention and prescriptions being the last point of call rather than the than the first one and actually empowering, yeah. getting the patient empowered to do their own behaviour changes.
1: And, you know, we, mental health's a, a big one and uh, I think that's a big part. But, I mean, even with uh, physical health, uh, you know, medications obviously have a, have a massive role to play. Um, but sometimes if we look at the relative... Um, efficacy of of using different drugs versus lifestyle change. Uh, if you think about cardiovascular health, you know, heart health, for instance, there's no doubt that exercise, good lifestyle, all these things actually have a much, much bigger impact than any drug that's ever been invented. Um, so we definitely need to push that um, agenda with our patients much more and not be afraid to do that.
0: And at this point, I do just want to add the caveat to any of our listeners that yeah. we're not saying don't take medication, it can be really helpful for yeah, of all sorts of mental health and physical conditions that absolutely yeah. do. Um, but I think it's just getting into the mindset that, that our patients are able to do stuff for themselves and our clients yeah. are able to do stuff for themselves. And for me, this was a huge mindset shift. So when I teach about the drama triangle on my shapes toolkit course, I always talk about, instead of a rescuer, we move into more of a coach mentality Yeah, and we view the victim, not as a victim, but as an activator, um, someone who is quite capable of Of solving their own problems, doing it for themselves. And of course, then you've got to also view the the person who's a persecutor or the thing that's a persecutor, not as a persecutor, an evil persecutor, but it's just a a challenge or a a catalyst. And for me, doing some coach training, learning how to coach, just it it really changed my life in terms of all sorts of things, because you immediately start spotting when you're rescuing rather than coaching when you're trying to fix things rather than than coaching and actually yeah. health behavior change coaching is really really powerful and it did I did just feel like this weight had lifted off my shoulders because for the first time I must I think I was really stupid because I'd practiced medicine <laughs> for what 10-15 years thinking it was up to me to solve everyone's problems and I suddenly realized that I couldn't and yeah. it was up to them to solve most of their problems it was yes. quite quite a relief at the time.
1: Absolutely, and and I've gone on a similar sort of um, journey myself with getting that understanding. And interestingly, I'm actually just doing uh, coaching at the moment Going through the course at the moment, so that's been really helpful to to you know kind of think through some of these things, and, and actually our social prescribers and health wellbeing coaches, all of these roles, are now exist, and they've often done exactly that type of training about health behavior, health behaviors, and how we motivate people, that motivational interviewing techniques, and um, this is something actually you know as a, locally we've actually been doing um, in our patch to actually train, help train clinicians on, on motivational interviewing, um, even in 10 minutes, um, what, what you can do to try and, uh, uh, move people forwards, uh, rather than sort of dependent on you. So yeah, it, it's, it's a massive, massive deal. Um, and one, one challenge, I think that all clinicians, but so many other professionals have.
0: Mm. So what advice would you give to someone, Uh, to any professional who has a client or a patient who's well and truly dumped their naughty monkey on you. How do you hand it back? What are your top tips for for giving that back and making sure it's not going to stay with you after the the consultation or when you you shut down your computer or you leave work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as I say, first of all, I think you do need to Obviously, in the consultation, you'll have unpacked some of it and understood why they've come in and understand what what the actual um, issues are. I think I try and, uh, as I say, partner with with the patient and make it clear from the outset that you are a partnership. And, you know, for some... uh, maybe may be easier in the legal setting and other other settings actually having uh, an you can almost have an agreement between you as to exactly how the relationship will develop and certainly in coaching um circles that's much more familiar um but in the patient setting that's that it can be more difficult but you do need to have that i think that discussion about actually here's the the, the issues that we that we've got here and let's let's share this plan um of of how we'll move forward. So. So one of the phrases I like to use is um, these are the things that I could do to help today, and these are the things that you could do to take this forward. Um, so it's really clear who's doing what. Sometimes writing it out can be helpful. Actually, having it down as a clear plan for you both really helps. I think that's often where there's issues is where there's perhaps not a clarity at the end of the, at the end of the meeting. And it might mean that that first meeting takes longer. You know, it takes much longer than 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, but that'll have a massive value in the long term because you won't then be spending that 20 minutes the next time and the next time and the next time. Um, and you've clearly set out those boundaries, not only for the issues that they've discussed today, but going forward as well. Um, so making it clear what you are there for and what, what you're not there for um, and signposting effectively to other sources of help that there are... To do that, you need to be aware of what's out there. Um, so when you get those emails about different services, uh, actually, it's worthwhile knowing you know what is out there.
0: Yeah, my sort of top tips are very much as a, a coaching role. You know, you would never come out of a coaching session with actions for the coach to do. Yeah. I might say, I'll send you a questionnaire or something that would be helpful, but I'd never say, right, my action is to talk to that person for you yeah. or that. You know, never in a million no. years. But often as a GP, you'd go, OK, well, I'll do that for you. I'll phone mm. that person. I'll write that letter, you know. I guess if if you can get the patient to take ownership and responsibility for doing that themselves, that is much that's better. So that's so I like the like self-referrals to physio, I like self-referrals to IAPS, all that sort of stuff, because it's the onus is on them and they're much more likely to benefit from it they do it. So stop the stop the doing it, doing it for everybody. Um and I think that that applies to ev- all all professions. Yeah. Um and before you give advice, I think. Ask them what they've already tried. Yes. Or what they think they could do about it. I think yeah. that's And that's really good if you're a manager as well. That's my top tip for managers who don't want to burn out. When people come to you, for, your teams come to you for advice, before you go, well, this is what you should do, go, oh, I've got some ideas. What do you think you could do? What um. have you already tried? What are your options? So ask them. Um, yes. I think you really need to... Watch out for pants on the outside syndrome, which is superhero syndrome, which doctors definitely have lawyers definitely have it. Lots of other professionals definitely have it that we are superhuman and that our needs don't matter and that we're just there to give and give and give because it doesn't it doesn't end well. And then finally, I think something you said earlier was really important is is, is peer support and debriefing with other people, you know, yeah. because otherwise you get into your own sort of echo chamber of thinking that this is the right thing to do or it's normal. And, and it's so helpful when someone comes along and goes, hmm, that was an interesting way of handling that. Uh, yeah. and you think, is that not the way you do it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you sort of, and, and just debrief, you know, I've had this conversation. I'm not sure. I'm feeling like I've still got a bit of a monkey here.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've How still got I the baggage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely, I, and you know, at the end of the day, when when you debrief, those conversations are just so valuable um, and have certainly helped me so much in in, in my development and growth um, as a clinician. So yeah, you got you got to find people who you can talk to, debrief, and you know, going back to the coaching, you know, you'd, you'd have your coaching supervision, for instance, as a as an analogy. Um, so you do need that 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 input at times.
0: Yeah. And I'll get on my hobby horse here, but now about how coaches have to have supervision, how psychologists have to have supervision. Doctors, you get an appraisal once a year. Do we have any mandatory formal supervision to talk? You know, you're seeing 30, 40 patients a day, all Mm. who've got these monkeys jumping around and there's, there's no regular mandated, mm. debrief, supervision. I just think it's so important. So if you can find a peer to do it or a peer group to do it with or anyone, I think that's really, really important, even just informally with a, a friend having a yeah. coffee now and then. Yeah.
1: Definitely, definitely. I think my wife's definitely a lot better at that, doing that. They've got a bit of a, a group of friends who have formed a bit of a balance group. And I think that's that's so valuable. Mm. Uh, we, we all need it. We all, We all need to debrief. And sometimes it can be helpful to get some context from someone who's outside of your working environment as well to, to normalise because you can develop a bit of a culture um, and of, of practising a certain way. Um, so so getting a different perspective, someone with a different personality perhaps to you as well, really helps.
0: Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, thank you so much. That has been so helpful. Really, really interesting. I think we've been talking about that for a long time, but we do need yeah. to stop. Um, yeah. Amit, if, if people wanted to get in contact with you, where could they find you?
1: Um, best... Places really, so LinkedIn, um, as, as you found me, uh, so that, that, that's a really obvious place. I'm just Amit Sharma, no funny nicknames. Um And uh, my sort of contact details are on there, so email uh, is on there as well, um, It's probably the best way.
0: Great. Thank you so much for speaking to us then. Hopefully we'll speak again soon.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks. Bye. Bye.